Jordan Werfsbrock is an ultra runner. This means that she runs races that are up to 100 miles or more. This is how she started. So I guess I had always walked a lot. This was actually something that my mom and I did together, probably around fifth grade. Pretty much every Saturday, we would go and we would walk a 10K. She lived in Oregon. Sort of the outskirts of Portland. So lots of very tall, evergreen trees. Based on statistics, we know it was probably cloudy and overcast (laughs) and probably about 45 degrees. And these were really, like, chill events. 6.2 miles, it would take us three hours. So we were just kind of strolling. It was a stroll. And one day, I was out on one of these walks with my mom, and there was this this other kid, this other girl who was my age. Hi. And we, for, I don't even know why, we just started jogging. I was like, see you, Mom. <laughs> I thought we'd jog for just like a minute and then go back to walking, but you know, it felt really good. We ended up like running the whole thing, which seems really weird now because I'm like, wow, I'd probably never run more than like a mile when you have to run the mile at school for the presidential fitness test. But this was, we were not trying to go fast at all. So it was just this very like free, like, Oh, like a, this is a different cadence. cadence than walking, but it's just as easy and we're going faster. And, and to know that I had that in me to go that far felt really great. As you're listening to Jordan here, you should be thinking, this is odd. Kids don't like running long distances. Every time there was a longer distance that was on the table, I just was excited to jump for that. Part of it was because no one else wanted to. People were like, ugh. And, and part of it was that I, the longer I was going, like the better it felt. Hmm. The longer I was going, like, the better it felt. This is Sift. I'm Bishop Sand. In this episode, we'll explore what happens to you when you exercise, and we'll have Jordan's experiences to guide us through it. We're in Oregon. Here, Jordan remembers her first unpleasant experience with exercise. Yeah, it was at a track meet in sixth grade. So my very first experience competitively, which meant my first experience trying to run fast. I know it was rainy because I remember I was bundled up in way too many clothes than you would ever run in. Like I I felt like the uh, like the Michelin man. And so I was doing I think it was the 400 and I just started sprinting. You can't do that for more than a few seconds before just getting fatigued. It felt like my body was like something made out of lead. Very heavy, like very difficult to move my muscles. Gasping, lungs burning. 
and I felt like hampered by all these layers I was wearing. And it was raining. But then there's this realization that like the race is not even a quarter of the way over. My name is Marlena Allen. I am an aspiring physical therapist and hope to attend graduate school for physical therapy next fall. You will attend a graduate school. Yeah. Okay. I will attend. Whatever. Okay. Next. When Jordan sprinted so quickly, and when anybody does. You're consuming all this oxygen, but it takes a while for it to go through your mouth, to your lungs, to your cells, in the blood. Because of that, you're not actually utilizing it yet. You're forcing your body to burn a lot of glucose without any oxygen. And this anaerobic metabolism creates lactic acid. If you keep pushing your exercise hard without any more oxygen, the lactic acid starts to build up and it starts to burn. Yeah, it hurts. Can't keep going. But again, Jordan is a bit strange. She wasn't deterred by this. Instead, she started focusing her energies on longer distance runs. And that experience was, you know, oh, I can do this. I feel light. I feel free. I feel capable. The longer I was going, like the better, the better it felt. Jordan found that if you push past that initial kind of adjustment phase, then the body starts to use the oxygen it takes in without much lactic acid buildup and without the burning. Which is called steady state. Your energy demands are being met and everything is just balanced. I would call it a homeostatic point. It can be anywhere from 10 minutes to, they say, about an hour. During steady state, you're drawing on several sources for fuels. In muscle cells, long molecules of glycogen are getting chopped into smaller glucose molecules and burned with oxygen. This gives the muscle cells the energy they need to ratchet and move the muscle. When this is all functioning well, it feels real good. Yeah, definitely. I'm ecstatic and I'm excited and happy and like my body feels good and... <laughs> I mean, you don't feel anything. You just float. Yeah. As I told many people, you could bottle that. If you could figure out what in the world it is, you'd win the Nobel Prize for something. I feel like I could run fast and I could run forever. But to trace it to endorphins, that just has not held up because the endorphins cannot cross the blood-brain barrier to exert this good feeling effect. So who is this? I'm David Neiman. I'm a professor of health and exercise science. I direct the human performance lab for my university, Appalachian State University. Right now, we'll learn about the darker side to running from Professor Neiman and Marlena Allen. Mm-hmm. So. If you run at a marathon pace, 
for 75 or 90 minutes. And you haven't stopped. It becomes a physiologic stressor. Including fluid loss through our sweating, electrolyte depletion, our glycogen stores are going down. And your body struggles to cope with this stress. Then you got to have the liver breaking down its glycogen into glucose, and that has to get delivered to the muscle. That's rather limited. You will then switch to fat to start burning. That's right, especially from the abdominal fat area. There's a lot of fat. Mm -hmm. And so the muscle reluctantly starts using those fuels but it goes through a more difficult process that in the end requires more oxygen. That will give you a lot of ATP, it's just gonna take longer, which is why you can only last so long. Most people tend to slow down. And the glucose delivery to the brain goes down. So instead of using glucose, your brain starts to rely on ketones. You feel terrible and you can't maintain the pace because it's going to require more air coming in and you just are already knocking at the edge of what you can do. And then... When every fiber in your body is screaming for you to stop... You hit the wall. You just, you want to curl up and die. It feels like I don't know how to move my legs anymore. I want to move them but they're so fatigued, I cannot move them. I'm like this puppet, but with no one controlling the strings, and it's just like legs fumbling around and they can't propel me forward. So, so those moments happen, they're awful. They're really as bad as they sound, and there's nothing you can do but keep moving, right? Because if you're, you know, say this happens to me and I'm 10 miles away from any aid station, I can't sit down. Like, that's not going to help. That's not going to actually solve the problem. The only thing to do is to keep moving. You know, it's, it's really unfortunate that the marathon movement became so popular throughout the world. It's really not a good human activity. We're creatures that throw water out and don't store a lot of this preferred glycogen. So just to even run a marathon, every hour that we run, we've got to be drinking a liter of water. And try to get in 60 grams of sugar. 60 grams of sugar is half a cup or about the amount of sugar that's in a can and a half of soda. The only good time to really be eating sugar is during exercise. At this point, it's a good idea just to be reminded about how little we actually know about what goes on in your body when you exercise. I think that what people have done is they've studied exercise through a very sort of biased eye. This is Dr. Robert Gersten from Harvard Medical School, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and the Broad Institute. You know, many people have looked at cassettes of small molecules. 
they've kind of picked their favorite molecule, but not in kind of a systematic way. Many of them are important, right? But, but we, we don't really functionally know how to put it all together. I mean, that's the whole field of systems biology. I really think that the toolbox for doing this is kind of now. How about genome sequence mass spectrometer? The aptamer-based technique that bind proteins. And it's a high throughput way to now measure up to 5,000 proteins in the it blood. It really wasn't available before. Dr. Gerson's about to embark on major systematic studies of metabolites when you're exercising. Exactly. And he thinks... We're going to be finding lots of things circulating in the blood that come from specific tissues, say the muscle, and then act in hormone-like ways on other tissues, like say the liver or fat cells, etc. But even beyond this basic research, soon we'll be able to say something about why exercise is actually healthy for you. We have this broad association that people who exercise do better in life. They have less cardiovascular death. We have this notion that if you exercise, you can stave off diseases like diabetes. We still don't really understand how that's working. So the ultimate goal is, you know, to some degree understand so that we might ultimately get to not exercise in a pill, but understand what those pathways are that we might be able to exploit for people with cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. Okay, back to what it feels like to experience the exercise. Here's Jordan again. I'll have sort of creative breakthroughs when I'm running. I'll write emails to people. I do a lot of math, but like stupid math. I'll spend like, you know, a half hour or something just trying to figure out what my projected finish time is. I'll make a list of like, okay, I need to get rid of my trash. I need to get, you know, new food in my pack. I need to refill my water bottle. I have something that might be turning into a blister on my foot. So just keep that in my mind. Um, let's see, I've been going for about 20 minutes, feeling pretty good. And what's been going through my head is a little loop of a song. Not very much, about five seconds. And because I've been obsessed with Hamilton for the past nine months or so, of course it's sung from Hamilton. And it falls on. Share a fraction of your mind. Look at world, it would be enough. Just that, over and over, for the past 10 minutes or so. And it doesn't get boring. <laughs> it helps me go up the hill, keep it right on and focus. Beyond this, there are a lot of deeper things going on while Jordan exercises. 
I'm thinking of the run, a run that I had early September of 2016. I didn't know if I was gonna do it, and that's something that has driven me. This trail that's near my house called the the Beaver Brook Trail, and it's it's just it's very it's very bright, and there's cactus, a little bit of scree, sagebrush. You know what? Everything's just like sharp, because like the rocks are sharp, the plants are sharp, like everything that has to survive in this dry patch is like super <laughs> tough. And there's this one particular spot on the trail, at the bottom of the hill. Every step you kind of have to be very conscious about where you're gonna put your foot. Are you gonna step up to this next rock? Is there like a dirt part you can step on? And she thinks, I can't run this hill. Normally I walk I walk this, this is gonna be awful. But, but then there's like a little voice that says, Well, just run until you can't run anymore. Well, just run until you can't run anymore. Okay, I can do that. And so I just, I start running. I don't decide to walk from the beginning. I decide I'm gonna run until I get so fatigued that I just can't pick up my feet anymore. And so I start running up the hill and I keep thinking I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop, but I don't. It feels really good and I feel almost like I'm floating. Like I'm being pulled up the hill. That builds the confidence, then that makes me happier, and then I feel better, and then I run better, and I run smoother and more efficiently, and so it continues and it grows. But what happens when you stumble, when you don't get that positive feedback? And that's kind of where I am right now, is I'm trying to figure out how to, how to build, build back that sort of that feeling because it because it really is a matter of exploring both exploring amazing physical places that you get to go run on but then also like exploring what you can do my whole life those have been the experiences that I've sought out and um now it feels like more and more I'm finding out that sometimes I just really can't do it and then how do you how do you move on from those? How do you um, how do you how do you decide that you're gonna go back again and try again? Like that is something I'm I'm learning now. It's I, I don't know I I don't know. My name is Allison Brager. I am an academic researcher who focuses on physiology and neuroscience. And in one of her experiments, Dr. Brager studied the relationship between alcohol and exercise. And for her subjects, she used Syrian hamsters. Their livers have this tremendous capacity to metabolize alcohol, alcohol. Alcohol, alcohol. They're evolved to be functional alcoholics. They voluntarily drink up to 50 times more alcohol in a day than an average human male. Okay, so hamsters like to drink. But for Dr. Breger's experiment, we either gave them access to alcohol or water. 
the percent alcohol we gave them access to was about 20%. So that would be like every time they went to their sipper, they were drinking wine. You see it weeble wobbling around its cage. We also gave them access to a running wheel. When the running wheels were unlocked, they would run more and drink less. But if we locked the running wheels... And thereby not letting them run. They would drink more. And it wasn't, you know, like a very trivial amount. It was nearly double. So it's just you need to have that rewarding stimulus somehow. You got to get that. Exactly. The reason why I have dopamine tattooed on my arm is that's the neurochemical that's released anytime the body feels pain or pleasure. Whether it's somebody likes your status on Facebook, or you're running, or you're drinking, or you're doing hard drugs, or you're eating chocolate, or you're having sex, dopamine is being released. So it's very indiscriminate, which again is, is a powerful means to use things such as socialization and exercise as therapeutic agents for substance abuse. Now let's just say that someone gets injured and they have this pleasurable experience of exercise taken away from them. As you'd expect, it deeply affects them. Here again is Jordan. When I can't run, you know, I feel I do feel like part of my identity is is lost or is missing. You know, it keeps me able to function in all the other aspects of my life. So like when my running is going well, you know, work stuff is going well, personal relationships are going well, you know, it helps me navigate everything else that I have to do. And so then trying to figure out, oh, how do I cope when I can't do that thing that I normally do to cope? It's, I'm still trying to figure out how to do that, you know? That's it for SIFT. For past episodes, you can go to siftpodcast.com or wherever you consume your podcasts. Thanks to my guests this week. I'd also like to mention that Dr. Brager has a book out. It's called Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. I'm Bishop Sand. Thanks for listening.